In the last 10 years, our field has gone from an unknown specialty to a household name. This brings unprecedented opportunities, but we need to rise up to meet them and give our patients the care that they deserve. In order to help others get better, we need to be better. This podcast will help you to become more confident with your patients, more successful in your practice or business, and a leader in pelvic health. And we're going to have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising Podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey Nicole. Hello. All right, we're having a great episode this time. I always get excited when I'm allowed to talk about some cognitive biases on here. Yeah, get ready. Either to, if your little nerd ears perked up with Jesse talking about cognitive biases, then great. If you need to get your pillow... And go to the snooze fest around here. Pelvic PT Rising sleep story starts now. <laughs> Actually, this will be a good one. So in the genesis of this was during this like creative process, many of you guys know that I am creating a course, the working title, although probably not the final title, is something in the realm of like Not Your Mama's Kegels course, which is basically a pelvic floor strengthening, think differently kind of a course. And... Of course, we always get into these major discussions as I'm trying to like synthesize what I'm actually trying to say. And Jesse globbed on to one of these cognitive biases that I was basically describing without calling it by that name of why this course was so important. And so we're going to talk about it today. It was one of those things that Nicole put up in a poll in the huddle, actually. It was t- we're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nicole, but I think it was about the assessment of strength in the pelvic floor and how that's actually assessed. And what a couple of people had mentioned in their comments was that they use some form of method of that, perfect, branks, whatever it is that you guys are doing, but didn't really pay a lot of attention to it and were only using it for insurance. And First of all, that's a whole nother podcast episode that we really should dive into is how much of the field is dictated by what's actually best for patients, what you guys genuinely believe, and how much of stuff is actually dictated by trying to get insurance reimbursement and fighting with insurance companies. But that was a a great example of someone who was saying, hey, I'm only doing this thing. I don't really find a lot of value in it, but I'm only doing it because either A, it's what I was taught in my entry-level course, or B insurance companies like it yeah or yeah which is a version of like i have to therefore i do it which is just so interesting we ended up talking about it a super long time and and then got into this what is that called jesse well i think that what we're seeing here is what's called the anchor bias and the challenge is what what perked my ears up is when that person said i'm getting this information but um, it's not really affecting my thought process I'm getting this information for insurance, but it's not really affecting the way that I treat that person going forward. And this is a super famous cognitive bias. It's one of the ones that actually won Daniel Kahneman and Tversky a Nobel Prize 
But basically, it's talking about it's really, really difficult, and some people would say impossible, to let go of a piece of information that you're getting like that, especially one that you're getting really early on in the patient's journey. So it's almost impossible, according to the anchor cognitive bias, to just forget that you measured them at a 1 or a 1.5 or a 7 or whatever the scale goes up to. (laughs) Right. And this is not to say that this person is doing anything wrong. And in fact, I thought that that comment was actually really insightful, right? Because, you know, in so many words, and I think a lot of us feel this way, which is the whole reason why I'm doing this course, is that like they're what are we really measuring when we're putting our finger in there and telling, asking somebody to squeeze? Like, and what are we doing when we're actually assigning that a number? And a lot of us, according to that poll, are using what's called the perfect score or the PERF, maybe not doing that ECT part, but that is kind of like the overarching thing that we're doing with strength assessment either because it's the only thing that we know it's what insurance companies want and or because like we're just doing it because that's part of the pelvic floor assessment that we learned and and that was what perked up jesse's ears and then i started to be like oh yeah that's what i kind of feel like when i'm teaching people or unteaching certain things that people are doing I don't use any of those tools and I have the luxury of not having to do them for insurance because we have a practice that doesn't take insurance or is cash out of network, all the things that you want to call it. But honestly, you guys, and this is, this is actually going to be like a huge confession. Even when I was in an insurance-based world, because I started to realize that my patients were going to need more therapy than they were going to be allowed for insurance, I literally would start to like downgrade their scores. And then, because when I was first learning, we learned about the, I used, used to use the Brink scale. That's what I learned. To me, that made a little bit more sense. I don't even know why back in the day, I have to like go back and look at that. I haven't used it in so long, but Long story short is that I was doing the same thing you all were doing, right? I took pelvic floor one. I did have a mentor and, you know, she was also sort of using that scale too. And so I was like, okay, cool. Let me just do it this way. And then I started to get roadblocked by insurance companies because I would give them an accurate, you know, what I thought was an accurate assessment. And then I was like run out of visits because there's only so much improvement that you can show until you hit the top of the scale. And so I was like, well, this is just stupid. Like, well, I just need to like downgrade them more. And it's like, if I'm going to lie on the test, I might as well just not do the test. So I abandoned that whole thing like a long time ago. It's like the PE test when you're in the second grade. Like, I'm going to have graded on how much faster I run the mile next time. So I'm going to sandbag this first one a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, I know I wasn't doing it to like deceive. Well, I was doing it to deceive the insurance companies. I don't think that that's wrong. I was doing it to like help patients. I mean, you can argue with me on whether or not that's like wrong or right or whatever, but, but also like, I've always thought that manual muscle testing just in general is really stupid when everything you're working in is system. And then I was like, why are we like trying to push this person's like lower leg down to test quad strength when really like, I just want to see them squat. Like what the hell are we doing? So I've always had this sort of like, you might call it problem with authority. Like you tell me to do something and I'm like, why? 
Anyway, so manual muscle testing in general always seemed stupid to me. And then doing the pelvic floor part of that just seemed extra dumb. And especially when it was hurting patients by not being able to see me and I was getting called into my supervisor's office, like, I'm not joking, literally every week, Judith, if you are listening, you're going to like, remember this every week, she would try to have me categorize patients into quote, simple pelvic floor patients, simple incontinence patients and complex pain patients. And I would be like, there is no such thing as a simple pelvic floor patient at all, like stop telling me this. And so she was like, well, would look back and do chart reviews and be like, well, you graded her at this on this and now she's at this. So I would be like, yeah, she's shown strength improvements, but she's still peeing her pants. So like, what does that mean? So then I was like, well, let me just play the game. So fine. You're a one. You are a one out of five, right? I couldn't put zero because then it would be like, what's neurologically wrong with this patient? (laughs) So I was just like, fine, one, one plus. Then I started adding one minus, I don't even think this is a thing, but I used to be doing like one minus one, one plus to try to get more of my own like levels in there. So I'd be like, well, she went from a two to a two plus, but she's not a three. So, I mean, all I was doing all that stuff. And finally I was just like, this is just, this is for the birds, man. This shit is for the birds. Well, I think that a lot of people from at least the comments that we've been getting are feeling what you were feeling with that. And don't really know what to replace it with, which is kind of the whole point of this course. But you're feeling like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this just because I learned this in my entry-level pelvic floor course? Am I doing it just because insurance? But I think that one of the things when, when Nicole, you were talking to me about why you're so passionate about this subject is because it does, even if we know that it's an imperfect thing, it doesn't really measure what we think it measures. All of the things that you've said about assessment that I think almost everybody hopefully agrees with or sees yeah, at least. Yeah, I think on paper you guys would like see that. But when it's not, there's an opportunity cost because it does take you down because of, I think, this anchoring bias. It takes you down this road whether you want to or not because those numbers, those concepts are sticky. Like those stick in our heads. And I'm going to give you guys a couple examples of these because I get really excited about this. But The definition, I went back and looked it up, the anchoring bias is the tendency to rely too heavily on one trait or piece of information when making decisions. That's the anchor, usually the first piece of information acquired on that subject or something early on in your learning. And especially when it's something that's so easily thrown out there, like just a number, one to five, like that's a lot easier to say and to stick. That's a sticky number. Right. Or, or even like the number of endurance, right. And then the length of the contraction hold and all that stuff right now, what are you doing now? You have to explain what you're doing to the patient. So even if you don't actually believe that 10 seconds is like this magic number of, oh, if we can magically hold some contraction strength for 10 seconds, then we're going to be quote, good to go. Like, even if we don't believe that, if we measure it that way, not only does it stick in our brain, like with this anchoring bias that Jesse's talking about, but it also forces us to have to explain to the patient what we're doing, especially with the pelvic floor, because we shouldn't be in someone's pelvic floor without explaining (laughs) what we're doing. That would be weird. So, right. So now all of a sudden we're having to like say out loud, which I'm sure in some study somewhere (laughs) starts to solidify that even more. We start to talk about it as if it's a thing, even though deep down, you know, that that might not be the thing that 
really means a whole lot. And it's certainly an anchor for the patient then as well. Now they've heard you say, oh, you're at a 1.5 out of 5. And three seconds and then they're like well where should i be at and now all of a sudden you can't lie right well the research says 10 and is that based in anything like all of that stuff is all the stuff we're going to go over in the course but like that i want you to there's other areas of this anchoring bias too that happen in our field and really in our lives and so i thought that was going to be a fun thing to explore today yeah and it just starts taking you down a road you might not necessarily want to go down if you were given the options on a multiple choice test. But we see cognitive biases, anchoring bias every single day. Like retailers are amazing at taking advantage of this. So like every time you go to a restaurant and you guys look at the, the wine list at a restaurant, almost every decent restaurant is going to have like a $150 bottle of wine there. A lot of times, guys, I'm going to let you in on a little restaurant industry secret. They might not even carry that wine. But man, there's a $150 bottle of wine here. Well, the $50 bottle they're selling me is really pretty cheap. Yeah. So That's a see, great deal. We see that a lot in price anchoring. We talk a lot about that in the Pelvic PT Rising Business Mentorship Group. All of that kind of stuff. Price anchoring is huge with that. This drives me crazy in online like sales and stuff. If you guys ever have been on, and maybe you're not looking at all this stuff as much as I am, but the people who are like, oh, here's $4,000 worth of stuff. And we're going to give it to you for not 4000 but for 3000 but not 3000 but 2000 but all the way down to $47. And you're just like, really? you're just, But you're like, oh my God. Right? Because they've anchored that. They put a number out there. If they just said, hey, here's my $47 thing, you'd be like, is that worth $47? What they've done is rewired that question and said, hey, this is a $4,000 course that I'm going to give you for $47. And even though, guys, we know that's bullshit... Because if you could sell a course for $4,000, you would sell it for $4,000. They're not giving you a 99% discount out of the goodness of their heart, but that's the power of that anchoring phenomenon. So you're seeing that all over the place. They're set up if you ever go and like buy a pool table. They've done studies that if they show you the most expensive one first, your average purchase price is way higher. And that's why you'll see that at stores. Uh, you go in and like they'll show you something relatively expensive in an area in a section knowing you might not buy that, but it's going to make the next thing look a lot better to you. So we see this constantly. And I think that there's a couple of areas that Nicole and I were kind of going back and forth with where this starts to kind of percolate into clinical practice. And I think one, Nicole, you mentioned was sometimes you get anchored to whatever they describe as their primary symptom. Right. So this goes a different way too, right? What's the first piece of information that they give you? Sometimes that anchors us down a path that may or may not be appropriate. So that's why I think that in essentials, we go through like the importance of the intake form to force you to talk about all of the different aspects of pelvic floor function without fail, because we're not just, I mean, we at the same time, we want to believe the patient's saying what they're saying. And it is something to be uh, taken into consideration what they're purporting first to you. But we know that there is a lot of other things that we need to know to make sure that we can address their entire picture. And so we can get essentially anchored into, I have stress urinary incontinence when I am running and I don't want this to happen. 
anymore. And then if we just go down the incontinence route and alleviate their incontinence and, 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 and get them back to running even, but we didn't ever talk to them about whether or not constipation was an issue, whether or not painful intercourse was a thing, then we're missing huge pieces of the puzzle, not only to alleviate symptoms, but to make sure that the pelvic floor itself is thoroughly evaluated to make sure that none of those other things pop up as well. Because so help me God, if anybody comes into pelvic sanity and they only get treatment for the thing that they came in for, like, no, that is just like not what's happening. Like we have to educate people to connect dots. And I would say 99% of the time, if you start to actually ask people questions beyond what they come in for, you find out either information that's going to help you with their primary thing or the why to their primary thing. And you end up completely having a different picture if you are disciplined in trying to not be a victim of this bias. Another place we've heard or seen this is in getting too wrapped up in the diagnosis. Right, that's another anchor point. This person has interstitial cystitis. I need to go down this whole IC route. This person has vaginismus. It says so right here on the referral. And I remember you were telling a story a while ago, Nicole, about a patient early in your career who came in with the diagnosis of dyspareunia. Right, dyspareunia. And then she was like, I was all about the painful sex stuff, right? I was going through my list of things that I needed to address. And then all of a sudden she... She was like a super nice, like probably like, I don't know, mid fifties kind of lady, maybe even into her sixties. I don't quite remember, but she was older and I was like, you know, 25 and she goes, hun, let me just stop you for a second. She goes, you know, I know this might seem kind of crazy to you being a young, beautiful young lady. She goes, but honestly, if I never have sex again, Like that, I don't care. My husband and I are great. We have other ways of intimacy and I really just want to get this urinary stuff under control. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like that was in that I was putting too much stock in what the physician was saying. I let that anchor my thought process about what this patient needed. And I will never forget that because that, that was the thing where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just going down that path just because it said that on the thing. And I think we would all say that a lot of times we don't care what the doctor says and all of that stuff. But again, with the, it's really hard to, to take that information and not use it. We have to just know that it exists and try to put things into our systems and our process that will stack the cards in our favor to not let that bias what we're doing in the, the thing. I think that another area we see that a ton in is vaginismus. Oh, vaginismus automatically means dilator therapy. And that is just so not the case. Half the people diagnosed with vaginismus don't actually have vaginismus. And that's like huge. And same thing with vulvodynia and all of that, right? Right. And I just feel like that's, that's a whole other podcast on the difference between the medical diagnosis and the PT diagnosis, which I get so passionate about. Like our PT diagnosis and assessment is like so huge. That's what we should be going off of and treating off of, not their medical diagnosis. Yes. And then so that also brings us to another bias that's really, it's 
one of the anchoring biases. These are kind of categorized as like, oh, the, the anchoring is, is kind of a big picture idea. It really comes down, it's called the law of the instrument or law of the hammer. It is based on the phrase like when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so a lot of times we adapt our approach to the tools that we either have or that we're most comfortable with. And we start kind of pigeonholing people into a box based on that instead of looking at a broader view and saying, hey, is there a tool that's a better fit? And you might not have one, which is the crazy part. You might not have one, especially early on in your career. You've just done pelvic floor one. Like this is what they said to do. You're doing it. But at least be noticing there if the tools that you have don't really seem like the right fit. Yeah, then trust that gut feeling, right? This is one of my big, what do you want to call it? Like crusades against biofeedback, right? I'm not, Again, I'm not, I don't care so much about the tool as I care about the opportunity cost that that tool, that using that tool presents, right? Is that that's because it's in some of the first stuff that we learn, it's really hard to abandon the fact that you think it's fundamental to your practice and it's definitely not. But you start to realize, wow, I could use this on everybody. In some way, In some way I can use the tool that I have, right? That is exactly what we're talking about with the hammer and nail analogy. I can use this hammer to try to screw in this screw. Is it the best thing to do? Probably not. But when you, all you have is that, it's really interesting how good our minds are amazing. They're creative. They're capable of all of these biases that we're talking about. But they're amazing at, at figuring out, cool, how can I use this tool that I want to use or that I have? It's the only one that I've got to do this. And I think one of the things that has happened is, Nicole, you've been talking a lot more about, about some of these things, especially as it pertains to strengthening, is we've been getting so many messages and so much conversation in the huddle everywhere else about, oh, I've been feeling that, but I just didn't know what to replace it with. Yeah, I love you guys. When, we, when I really start talking about stuff... You know, sometimes the huddle threads are on fire and sometimes my DMs are freaking on fire and my DMs have been blowing up with like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're going to talk about this. I've been feeling some kind of way about it and you're able to put it into words and help me. And really it's what I'm trying to do, right, is help you guys decide what you really think and giving you an alternate opportunity. I'm not here to tell you biofeedback's terrible or Kegels are the most stupid thing ever or anything like that. What I'm just trying to to do is present a different way of thinking and an alternative path to some of this anchoring bias that might have, that has sort of permeated our field and we can do that. And it's really cool. I can't wait for this course to be done. We're going to have more information. If this sounds like something you guys want to be a part of, it's going to be awesome. We've got a wait list going for those of you who want the early bird info and everything else. That's at pelvicptrising.com slash kegels. Hopefully that's easy to remember, pelvicptrising.com slash kegels. So make sure to register there, get on the wait list, and we will get you guys out some more information as we get closer. But it's starting to come together. This starting is the to fun come part. together. Yeah, totally. So in summary of this podcast, right, even though we started talking about it in context of this course, I do want you guys to think about all of the other ways where this anchoring bias can influence your day-to-day treatment practice. If you think about anything that we haven't mentioned, write us in 
pelvic or Nicole at pelvicsanity.com and or Nicole Cozine DPT on Instagram. I would love to hear other areas where you feel like this might be influencing you and your practice and what you're doing about it. Yes, please. We always love hearing from you guys. Let's keep this conversation going. And let's continue to rise. Rise.